from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. I'm Wendy Maloney, and I work for the U.S. Copyright Office of the Library of Congress. It's my pleasure this morning to in introduce Joy Harjo. Joy Harjo is an internationally known poet, performer, writer, and musician of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Her seven books of poetry, including How We Became Human, New and Selected Poems, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, and She Had Some Horses, have garnered many awards. These include the New Mexico Governor's Award for Excellence in the Arts, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Native Writers Circle of the Americas, the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America, and the Witter Binner Poetry Fellowship. Harjo has also released four award-winning CDs of original music. In 2009, she won a Native American Music Award, known as a NAMI, for Best Female Artist of the Year for her album, Winding Through the Milky Way. She also performs a one-woman show, Wings of Night Sky, Wings of Morning Light, which premiered at the Wells Fargo Theater in Los Angeles in 2009. Harjo has re received a Rasmussen U.S. Artists Fellowship, which comes with a $50,000 stipend in recognition of her cultural contributions. She is also a founding board member of the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. Harjo's most recent work is a memoir, Crazy Brave, published by W.W. W. Norton in July. A review calls the book part autobiography, part prose poem, and part mythology. Harjo traces the origin of her poetic, musical, and theatrical careers, but she offers much more than reminiscences. Her story is an account of the forging of a woman's soul, the hammer blows striking only to reshape her into a sharp and powerful blade of words and music. This raw and radiant coming-of-age story invites readers to breathe a light in and discover their own hidden capabilities. With that, please welcome Joy Harjo. Thank you, Mado, for that introduction, and I'm really honored to be here. Good morning, DC. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to start off with a song. You know, each of us is the point on a story trail of a lot of people, and my story begins, and all of our stories begin long before we're born. Things are set into place. We're born to a family, we're born to nations, and for Native people, we're part of several nations and, or at least two, the, our own tribal nations and the U.S. government in the U.S. And we're born to a generation, and uh, we're the story trail of a lot of people. On my mother's side, I'm Cherokee, Irish, French, which is kind of a potent, <laughs> a potent uh, a collision and uh, cultural interchange. And on my father's side, I'm a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, and of European peoples and African. So the story, I'm a point, a place in this story trail, and, and we're all, every one of us is making a story. 
In fact, you, you know, I wondered what use humans were in this world. And then I think, we, you know, we're about making stories. That's what we do. I mean, this is really, this whole National Book Fair is about the story matrix. And we're all active participants. We're all making stories right now. So I want to start off with a story. And, and, you know, I'm also, I'm a member of my father's tribe, but I'm also Cherokee. And they don't necessarily get along. They didn't get along historically. historically. And... Um, are very different, but you know, there's always grand experiments. I think this country, the United States of America, is a grand experiment by the creator <laughs> who says, let's see what can happen. <laughs> you know, if we start out with an indigenous country, uh, we would be a lot like, if there had not been the colonization, we would be a lot like, at least, or if it happened later, we would be a lot like India with all the languages and, and um, all the many cultures living, you know, we still are, but we've had to, um, we've had to uh, revive ourselves after a tremendous Holocaust. We were 100%, almost 100, because there's always people traveling about, that's how humans are. And we were almost 100% of this population and now we're one half of 1% and growing. And that tells you something about the story of America. It's not just Indian country, it's the story of America and it's all our story. So my story here is just a little piece of that. And it's memoir, which is memory, and we know memory, we have shared memories and we often can have a very different recollection than our brothers and sisters. Although my family, when they read this, they liked it and they said, well, the only thing is, it, it was worse. <laughs> you know, it was actually worse. And I thought, okay. But this is a song that was brought over on the Trail of Tears when our people were forcibly moved from the Alabama, Georgia area. And um, my grandfather, I'm seven generations, and my generation is seven generations from that removal, which makes a lot of sense when you think about what our generation has done in in uh, Indian country, you know, because we became the speakers and the and uh, very visible singers in the country, in a way that wasn't for a long time. Chihoto, Chazari, China. Flakari mo mais komet awachken So the story starts actually with a vision in which I saw how every story matters. I was taken by a guardian, one of the earth guardians, way above the earth, and I was shown how every, every story, every word, every gesture that, that we do 
matters to everyone else. And then it starts with one, uh, being before language, when I'm standing in the car, that was before seatbelts, which dates me, and uh, listening to music. Music's always been important to me. And I was listening to, I later realized it was uh, Miles Davis riff, and uh, the world opened up when I was in that sound. Every sound, every word holds possibility and the world blossomed, even though I didn't have the words to say it. With every book or creative project, you learn something, and in this book, I remembered how deep the consciousness is of children. It's really deep. When we carry that with us, you know, it's what carries us all through, but often we forget when we're dealing with children, or, you know, it's, it's a strange society that does not value the work of those people working on behalf of the children. Once, I was so small, I could barely see over the top of the back seat of the black Cadillac my father bought with his Indian oil money. He polished and tuned his car daily. I wanted to see everything. This was around the time I acquired language when something happened that changed my relationship to the spin of the world. It changed even the way I looked at the sun. This suspended integer of time probably escaped ordinary notice in my parents' universe, which informed most of my vision in the ordinary world. They were still omnipresent gods. We were driving somewhere in Tulsa, the northern border of the Creek Nation. I don't know where we were going or where we had been, but I know the sun was boiling the asphalt. The car windows were open for any breeze as I stood on tiptoes on the floorboard behind my father a handsome god who smelled of old spice, whose slick black hair was always impeccably groomed, his clothes perfectly creased and ironed. The radio was on. Even then, I loved the radio, jukeboxes, or any magic thing containing music. I wonder what signaled this moment, a loop of time that on first glance could be any place in time. I became acutely aware of the line the jazz trumpeter was playing, a sound I later associated with Miles Davis. I didn't know the words jazz or trumpet. I, didn't know how, I don't know how to say it with what words or sounds, but in that confluence of hot southern afternoon in the breeze of aftershave and humidity, I followed that sound to the beginning, to the birth of sound. I was suspended in whirling stars, I grieved my parents' failings, my own life, which I saw stretching the length of that rhapsody. My rite of passage into the world of humanity occurred then through jazz. The music was a startling bridge between familiar and strange lands. I heard stomp dance shells singing. I saw suits, satin, fine hats. I heard workers singing in the fields. It was a way to speak beyond the confines of ordinary language. I still hear it. And I say that my people were there when jazz and blues came into the world. In fact, I just got a public theater commission to write a play that will prove that. So not only did we have the different tribal and group 
things working with my parents. Uh, we also, my parents, this is just a little section, and my mother was fire. You know, people, we all tend to be one kind of element or another. More, some people are more balanced. But my mother's element was fire, and my father's element was water. And you can imagine what happens when those elements meet each other. Much different than earth and water or fire and air. My mother-to-be was fire. Those of fire move about the earth with inspiration and purpose. They are creative and can consume and be consumed by their desires. They are looking for purpose, a place in which to create. They can be so entranced with the excitement of creation that their dreams burn up, turn to ashes. My father-to-be was of the water and could not find a hold on the banks of earthiness. Water people can easily get lost, and they may not comprehend that they are lost. They succumb easily to the spirits of alcohol and drugs. They will always search for a vision that cannot be found on earth. So the story is a story I ran away from for a long time. I was 14 years behind contract at Norton. Something not heard of, usually. I thought I was only seven years. I'd written other books for Norton. In that time, I'd done CDs of music, but I realized I was running, and I had done different drafts. There were several books I wrote before this one, and much larger, but I realized that I was running away from the story that needed to be told, which was really a story about becoming an artist, about um, as much as anything else. So my story takes me through growing up in Tulsa until my a divorce, a stepfather who was quite evil, actually, and, and then getting away the opportunity to go to an Indian art school that saved my life and saved the lives of many of us. And then I wound up in you know, a first drama, and one of the first native drama and dance troops, and then a teenage mother living back in Oklahoma, living on nothing. And I used to walk around town. And we all come into this life with gifts. And we know when we're far away from our story in the story matrix. We know when we're far, far away. And maybe sometimes we need to be far, far away in the hinterlands of ourselves to really be able to ultimately understand ourselves and others. And this is about one of those moments when I'm walking around town and with nothing. I couldn't buy anything in the stores. We were living on commodity cheese and, and um, squirrels and, um, and whatever we could get. When I lived in Tahlequah, I used to walk through town, up and down hills, along the creek, by storefronts with items I had no money to buy. I, was, I walked when I was hugely pregnant and then after my son was born. It was my time alone. As I walked, I could hear my abandoned dreams making a racket in my soul. They urged me out the door or up in the night so they could speak to me. They wanted form, line, story, and melody, and did not understand why I had made this unnecessary detour. Think for yourself, girl. Your people didn't walk all that way just so you could lay down their dreams. I wanted more, 
and I didn't know how I would get it. My days were consumed with the drudgery of survival. I took care of the household, made meals of beans, fried potatoes, and cheap meat. I negotiated with a husband who was essentially a boy. He didn't know how to grow up. His father had abandoned the family, and he had no father map. There were flashes of inspiration and joy. I saw my son sitting by the screen door making dirt parachutes, his fine baby hair lit by the sun, singing with the radio. And my stepdaughter in a striped jumper with balloons in honor of her fourth birthday, climbing up swings in a park. But this wasn't enough to sustain the need for artistic expression. I believe that if you do not answer the noise and urgency of your gifts, they will turn on you or drag you down with their immense sadness at being abandoned. And then, <laughs> another little story about living back in Tulsa. At that point, I wasn't working cleaning rooms in the hospital, but um, I was about to, I was, I was just about to get a job uh, working at a pizza restaurant. But this was a strange, sometimes strange things happen. Another sign of spring was the posters announcing that the circus was coming to town. And again, I'm a teenage mother at this point living in Tulsa. We got discount passes from the grocery store. I took the kids and my sister-in-law to the Sunday afternoon show. It was my first venture out in over a year, and I felt expansive. The arena was packed with families, and the city's kids were swirling with snacks, circus toys, and excitement. We sat next to an aisle for easier access to the bathrooms. The girls asked about everything as we waited for the show. They wanted to know what time the show started exactly, and how long would it be before the show started? Where were the tigers? Could they have balloons? If they couldn't have a balloon, could they ride the elephant? And why couldn't we sit closer so we could see better? And could they go to the bathroom even though they had just been a few minutes ago? As I answered, I watched people and imagined their lives and how I would paint them, rejuvenated by the smell of popcorn and change in scenery. Out of the churning crowds, came a slim man in tights and a cape. As he headed up from the ring, people parted to let him by, an incongruous figure in the middle of the flatly ordinary. He stopped next to me and surprised me by speaking to me. At first, I thought he needed directions or had mistaken me for someone else, but he casually introduced himself as one of the brothers of the featured trapeze act, the flying something or other brothers. I felt suddenly awkward and mumbled a response. I didn't know what I had done to garner his attention. I had forgotten how to speak to anyone but small children and a husband who was so desperate for youth and fun that he had taken to riding around and drinking beer with his high school friends. This strange man from Italy was the first person who had talked to me in months, the only one who had asked me a direct question about my own life. I responded by talking about my husband. I told the Cape performer who had suddenly befriended me that my husband had been a dancer who was compared by critics to Rudolf Nureyev when we performed together in the Indian school troupe. 
He had many offers to join dance companies in the East, but had turned them down. I nervously talked up his attributes, but I really didn't know where I was going with any of it. Then I agreed to meet the man after the performance. When I look back, I can imagine how I must have appeared that afternoon, a vulnerable young woman dressed neatly but poorly, accompanied by an infant and by children waving their cotton candy clouds. That afternoon, the children and I watched the flying brothers swing gracefully from one small platform to another. I began to consider what it would be like to fly like this man beyond fear from Italy who traveled the world flying into space, risking his life while the crowd watched in awe. It was then I became convinced that this was a job my agile husband could learn. <laughs> as quickly and easily as he had learned to toss and twist pizzas. We could travel together and move into a world much larger than the one that was squeezing us flat, far, far away from his mother. I don't remember how we got from the circus to the pizzeria where my husband was working the afternoon shift. The sun came in through the colored dark glass in the restaurant as the manager retrieved my husband from the kitchen. I was excited about the possibility of something that might engage him, use his dancer skills, and keep everyone in food and clothes. I introduced the acrobat to my husband. They were civil to each other as I explained my idea. A ripple of tension coursed through all of us. It was my dream of flying, my fantasy. It didn't belong to anyone else. After I left the pizza parlor that afternoon, the flying man insisted on accompanying me to my apartment and waited as I put the children down for their naps. I was confused about his intentions, but offered him coffee, water, and food, which he declined. Then he praised my beauty and asked me to leave with him immediately for Corsica. <laughs> the exhilaration of the force of possibility pinned to me for a moment in the slant of the late afternoon sun. This was what I had been waiting for, but it wouldn't fit, and nothing I could do would make it fit into a map that was apparently there, but not there. I told him I couldn't go anywhere, not even Corsica. I had children. I asked him to leave. The circus left town that afternoon. My husband lost his job at the pizzeria a few weeks later, as I had predicted. We moved to another part of town after he found work in another pizza restaurant, and his mother followed us. <laughs> and then another piece. This is later. I went to the university. I wound up leaving Oklahoma, going back to New Mexico, and uh, getting into the University of New Mexico to study art. And um, I became a painting major. Although I got in first because I was going into pre-med and got all kinds of help because I was going to pre-med. When I changed my major to art, that help lessened. And then when I changed it to poetry f three or four years later, nobody wanted to help me. <laughs> but I made it. I mean, it is about those dreams happening. I would never, I never saw myself becoming a poet, but the spirit of poetry came to me, and I write about that moment in here, came to me, the actual spirit of poetry, and said, 
you're coming with me. And I had no choice because if I would have left that, I would have like those dreams clattering and bothering. It would never, I would never have found rest, just like saxophone. That was part of the story. So this was as a student at the University of New Mexico. That night, as we walked home from the bar, and I waited for him behind the motel, he seemed to take forever. It was about 2.30 in the morning, and as I stood there, the avenue grew quieter after the initial rush of traffic from the bar. The desk lamp inside the motel office made me lonely. I felt far away from everything. I carried an ache under my ribs that was like radar. It told me I was miles away from the world I intended to make for my son and myself. I saw my easel set up in the corner of the living room in my, our apartment next to my son's box of toys. I imagined having the money to walk up to the motel office to rent a room of my own. I knew what I would do. I would sleep until I could sleep no more. I would wake up with my dreams and listen and sketch and paint the visions I had put aside to take care of everyone else. I recalled the dream I had had of a daughter who wanted to be born. I'd been painting all night when she appeared to me. She was a baby with fat cheeks, and then there she was, a grown woman. She asked me to give birth to her. This isn't a good time, I told her. I was in the middle of finals and assisting and planning for a protest for the killing of Navajo street drunks for fun by some white high school students. They had just been questioned and set free with no punishment. Why come into this kind of world, I asked her. Her intent made a fine, unwavering line that connected my heart to hers. I walked behind the motel to look for him. I found his shoes under a tree. Beyond them were his socks, like two dark salamanders. A little farther beyond his socks was his belt, and then I followed a trail of pants, shirt, and underwear until I was standing in the courtyard of the motel. My stomach turned and twisted as I considered all the scenarios a naked, drunk Indian man might get into in a motel on the main street of the city. I heard a splash in the pool. I remember thinking, he's Pueblo Indian, he can't swim. <laughs> I considered leaving him there to flounder. It would be his foolish fault as well as the fault of a society that builds its city over our holy places. At that moment, his disappearance would be a sudden relief. It was then I first felt our daughter moving within me. She awakened me with a flutter, a kick. As I walked to the pool, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I never told her father about the night she showed up to announce her intentions or how I saw her spirit when she was conceived, wavering above us on a fine sheen of light. I never told my daughter how I pulled her father from deep water. Thank you. And then I'll close with this little piece before the, we're gonna do 10 minutes of Q&A. Not that I have any answers. I have, more, I have a lot of questions. 
So this comes after a dream of a chase that I had that began around the time our father left home when I was about eight years old. And it began with a sound like a panic. I don't know if you've ever heard those bull roars like and they, they sound like, it's like an opening between other worlds and this one. And in that dream, I would begin running. And one night, I, one late one night around this time, and I had written my last paper for a class, and I heard this sound, and I started running. And next thing I know, I was cornered in this white room, and I couldn't find my voice, because that's how I would get out of this. I would start to yell, and if I could make my voice, make it to the other side and touch into my body, then I could be free. But it wouldn't happen. And I'd never, this had never happened where I could not throw my voice to make a lifeline. Next thing I know, I heard this snuffled, congested breathing. <laughs> and then I looked, and I had never looked at the monster, and it was, it was like a horror that you cannot describe. I cannot, you cannot describe it. And at the same time, I realized that I was really tired of this chase, that I couldn't do it anymore, that I had done it for too long. And just when I was about to give up the knowing, and I talk about the knowing in here, we all have the knowing. The knowing reminded me that I knew how to fly. Actually, I've given, used to give flying lessons on the astral plane. <laughs> but they, my knowing says, you know how to fly? And so I thought, fly. And then I flew up, and that monster flew up with me. I thought, well, what do I do now? But then when I gave up and I just thought, okay, what do I do? This incredible love engulfed me. And it was like those cartoons, you know, where the blurb like a balloon. Suddenly all the fear left me. And I think it was the first time in my life that I ever felt totally, absolutely free of fear. And it left me and there was no panic, and there was an incredible lightness, and the monster tried to touch me, and because I was not harboring fear, the monster just went right through and didn't, could not touch me at all. So I carried that dream back through the many layers between that place and here, and this is one of my first poems. And I'll end with this before the questions. I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear, I release you. You were my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you with all the pain I would know at the death of my children. You are not my blood anymore. I give you back to the soldiers who burned down my home, beheaded my children, raped and sodomized my brothers and sisters. I give you back to those who stole the food from our plates when we were starving. I release you fear because you hold these scenes in front of me and I was born with eyes that can never close. I release you, I release you, I release you, I release you. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved, to be loved, to be loved. Fear. Oh, you have choked me, but I gave you the leash. You have gutted me, but I gave you the knife. You have devoured me, but I laid myself across the fire.
I take myself back, fear. You are not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart, my heart, my heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. Okay, questions. <laughs> she has a question. <laughs> Anna has a question over here. <laughs> I guess not. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's right. There's a microphone here. Well, that'll stop a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Was your name included in the book of the Cherokees, or do you claim it on your own? Uh, is my book, my, my name included? Well, my mother's grandparents came over on the Trail of Tears. I have a pot that the U.S. government gave her that uh, they gave to all Cherokees before they moved. But I, we don't, I'm not on her side. So I enrolled with my father's tribe. Okay. You know, many people where I'm from, which is near the nation of the Cherokees, many people know they're part Cherokee, but if they did not get their name written down at the time of that there was a closure. They listed all the Cherokees in a book. Yeah, I, I have relatives wondered. listed at the you removal. Okay, uh -huh. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. Thank you Hi. for being here today. I'm very happy to see you. Um, I've been following you for a long time. I think it's interesting that you went um, from art and you said you were going to major in painting and then you went to poetry. So I'm interested in what it is about, so you went to like self-expression creativity, but what is it that drew you specifically to words? And what I think words, I, in reading your work, words for you is something that's it's power. I think it's a way that, it's a, something that is empowering. I've uh, specifically read you in the context of um, female native writers reinventing, reinventing the enemy's language. Uh -huh. um, but what you feel personally for you, why you went from art in the context of painting to words specifically? Because I needed to know words. I was the, always sat in the back of the class. They sent notes home because I wouldn't speak. And I always signed all the notes. They didn't know that because I was the <laughs> oldest child and my mother worked three or four jobs. But uh, I think part of it and why the spirit of poetry came to me was because I needed to, it picked me. And I feel like the words, it's very interesting with this I think every gift has its own spirit, and they're very demanding, just like the music. I mean, my poetry spirit is part of my saxophone. My saxophone is kind of known for its tone, and it's the same voice. And actually, I came to poetry through music first, with my mother writing songs and singing, but the words carry, the words aren't mine. I take care of the words, I take care of that spirit. I, I read, I study, you know, like anyone else with an art form, and listen, but I have found that if I, I have to stay within the parameters of my gift, and I've tried to write really cool or outside of it, or do a little hip hop thing, my poetry gift stands there and does, 
you know, <laughs> this is what you are, this is the voice, and so I take care of it. But, um, yeah, like that, that spirit of creativity comes through, I add to it, it comes through the filter of who I am here right and now and my role as part of this generation, as part of being a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation who is in the country of America and speaking in a world. I mean, I travel a lot about the world and so I, I feel like the words are coming through, they don't belong to me. But they are, and I think that words and what's important about poetry is they remind us of the source of ourselves is that poetry was first um, meant to, the words create, words are creative force and they create the atmosphere around us. They uh, create our path where we're going, you know, as individuals, as a country, as earth, as citizens of earth. They are powerful and they carry words. And Scott Mamaday had a wonderful passage in, um, was it a way to rainy mountain about, or another, no, it was another uh, article he did about how words have power and what's happening in a culture where there's a proliferation of words and they become meaningless, almost like text, where text aren't, I guess you can write poetic text, but the impetus and the time, there's not enough time to be in poetry, except there, there are a lot of young poets coming up. I just met uh, several, there's some of them here, young poets who are part of this, they're national poets who are young people, oh, and there were over 200,000 entries. And poetry carries the spirit. Poetry carries the spirit of us. It carries the soul. The poetry carries the soul, words of, a, of, of human beings. But thank you for your question. Thank you. Hi. I just wondered if you could say a little bit about how your, the creative process is different in all the different expressions that you do, like how you approach, say, creating a poem versus a memoir or your prose pieces or your paintings or songs, like how that's different. Yeah, poetry and songs are similar. Sometimes I write, I take uh, poetry and turn it into songs. Now, when I used to perform with Poetic Justice, I did spoken. And so then I just kept, but then I would still, the song forms were different and I used to get, me and my uh, co-writer would get into these big fights because he was like reggae man and everything, <laughs> you know, had to be in these certain forms and then my poems wouldn't fit those. But then we both started working together and then when I started singing, that changed it some, but a lot of the poems fit right into, they're lyrical and they fit right into it. Uh, memoir is different even though I'm still a language person, and, but you still have a trajectory. I mean, there's trajectory in everything. There's architecture in everything, but there's still a trajectory from. So it's, it's a little different. I don't know, and then saxophone, you gotta, it's music. It's hard to say all at once right here, but, <laughs> but they fit together. I make them fit together in my mind or I'd go nuts with doing so many things. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, gathering that's happening at the base of the Capitol right now. It's the Aryan Nation, this white supremacist group. And I'm just, with your heritage, I was wondering what you would say to them or any kind of comment you would make. Well, I don't need, know that I need to make a comment because my... Um Because it, in anything I would say, they wouldn't hear. I mean, why would I speak to, you only speak to people that 
want to listen, otherwise you're wasting your energy. And all that we can do is it's to not engage. I think we need to take care of, you know, to take care of the vision of a vision that is inclusive and a vision that's based in what we call in the Muscogee Creek Nation, uh, Anagechka, which is an inclusiveness with love and compassion. And anything outside of that will destroy itself. Thank you. Hello. Um, Hello. This is one of the poets of the, what is it, the <laughs> student poets? The what, what is it? National Student Poets Program? Yeah, National Stu Student Poets Program. So look that up. I didn't even know about it until this morning. Um, I was wondering what you most enjoy painting and what parallels that has with your poetry. Okay, yeah, what I enjoyed painting, a lot of it was kind of abstract, were abstractions and landscape stuff, which has come over to, I do a lot of photography, a lot of it's on my Facebook, and I've had people buy photographs from it, and it's kind of switched over to that, and, and, but it's, um, you know, a lot of it's abstract, there's a lot of abstractions in the poetry. It's like, what do you find when you go beyond image? You know, images are so powerful, and yet they're very loaded. They're loaded with history. They're loaded with certain sounds or songs. And that's what always intrigues me about poetry. I come to poetry because I want to get beyond words. <laughs> the saxophone helps. But uh, <laughs> you seem to like to kind of find collisions between all the different senses in your art. Yeah, there are a lot of collisions going on. But, you know, that's, that's, what, that's how we grow culture. Cultures are like bioenergetic systems, you know, and if they're open and if they're living, a living culture, there's this flow going like this, you know, your mind is a kind of culture, you know, the heart, you know, and if there's a flow going, that's really cool, and that means listening to other poets, listening to a poet out of, you know, Iran and, and being moved by them and their listening and so on, and uh, or Bob Marley and John Coltrane. And so I see a poem like a, a listening field like that. But also that's what intrigues me about art. And when cultures shut down, we know I have two minutes left. When cultures shut down, that is when we see there's a stultification that goes on. But it's often the poets and the artists who come up through that to make sure that we live. Because we all want to live. Even cultures are living beings and want to live. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm a college student learning um, or trying to learn more about the Native American culture, and I was wondering um, what has it been like growing up as an Indian and what kind of hardships has you faced being Native American? Uh, you have to read the book. <laughs> she was asking about what I faced being a Native American, but what I want to say is that there is no such thing as Native American or American Indian that we are different tribes. In this country, we're over 500 different tribes, and we're as different as easy from each other as the Germans are from the English, from the French. And a lot of our experiences are different according to the places we live. So it can be, and then there's the experience of colonization and Indian school, that a lot of us go through those things. I mean, I have Indian school stories in here too, and I went to an incredible Indian school with native artists who were teaching and major native and non-native artists teaching, but there was also the Bureau of Indian Affairs system, so that was quite a collision where we weren't supposed to speak our tribal languages even in the late 60s, 
And yet, we, a lot of major artists came out of that. So I think it's a lot for, I don't, you know, I can just speak for myself, there's a lot of maneuvering and learning how to maintain an integrity, a cultural integrity, and yet, you know, share and be part of growing something unique and, and exciting and new as artists do. Do you think you would have the same spirit if you weren't Native American? I'm just who I am. I don't know what my spirit would be otherwise. You know, the spirit is comprised of many things. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, I guess maybe one, I think we're just going to have time for one more, but let's see. Hello, my name is Kwamea Dennis, and I also am a spoken word artist, and I also do poetry. And my question is, how do you first get published? How did I first get published? In student magazines at the University of New Mexico when I was an undergraduate. And it's probably different now. Now there's a lot of internet magazines mm -hmm. and a lot of self-publishing. Used to it used to be looked upon, you know, as, you know, you, you're publishing because you can't publish anywhere else. But that's not the truth. A lot of people have taken publishing into their own hands mm -hmm. and published themselves. Yeah. How long have you been writing? I've been writing since my 20s, my mid-20s. I was a late starter with poetry. Most people I know have been writing. Okay, I got to stop now. <laughs> okay, most people have been writing. Uh, forever, but I didn't start learning writing until I was in my mid-twenties, and then I picked up a saxophone when I turned 40. Well, thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.